Hi, and welcome to Sweet 1111. I'm Trice Brown. And I'm Miller Laufen. And today we are talking about Colin Mayfield. Uh, Colin is a former Auburn student who now is reporting in Ukraine as like the war is happening. Yeah, so our conversation today with him is just about his experience with that. Um, he's been able to be near the front lines a lot. Um, he actually arrived in Ukraine just a couple of days before Russia invaded. So it's a really mm. cool conversation that we were able to have with him. Absolutely. And we will be right back in a moment. Hey, this is Collins Keith, podcast writer for The Plainsman. If you like this podcast and would like to support the organization and our team, you can visit our website at theplainsman.com and click on the button in the upper right-hand corner that says Donate. You'll be supporting over 127 years of local, editorially independent journalism right here at Auburn. Thank you so much in advance, and now back to the show. I guess I w- let's start from the very beginning. Um, how did you end up in Ukraine when this was happening? Did you go there anticipating that this would happen, or did it just fall in your lap? I No, I, I came here to cover this story. Mm-hmm. So I've covered the conflict in Ukraine for a couple of years now, and it didn't just start with this invasion mm-hmm. at the end of February. This war goes back to 2014 when a more pro-Russian government was ousted during the Euromaidan protests. That year, uh, the Russian government annexed Crimea and separatists in the easternmost provinces or oblasts of Luhansk and Donetsk broke away and proclaimed the Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic. So there was a, a buildup for this war for months, and some journalist colleagues of mine told me that I might want to consider coming to Ukraine. I thought that Russia was just going to solidify its holdings in those eastern two provinces, which is the Donbass. I did mm-hmm. not expect a full-scale invasion over, over much of the entire country. So I was lucky enough to get in two days before the invasion. Mm. So... Generally speaking, um, what has it been like uh, covering this and like being there as it's happening and as it's become world news? It's been very exciting at times. It's been very mm-hmm. intense. It's been heart wrenching. Well, I've I've seen corpses on the front line that have been mutilated. I've interviewed families who've lost children and had their homes destroyed by artillery, and mm-hmm. it's been very stressful. Uh, living through artillery being woken up by it in the middle of the night and after a while like i've been able to differentiate between outgoing artillery which meaning Mm. you know what the ukrainians are shooting incoming which is what the russians are shooting at us so yeah after a while you can start the difference just based on the pitch but it's been a it's been a very stressful uh past month but i'm happy to be here so Colin does not speak Russian or Ukrainian. Um, so what what did he say he does like to like get over that hurdle and uh, talk with the people in the area? Yeah, so sometimes he's with um, friends or fellow journalists that do speak Russian, so that's helpful. Um, he does hire translators sometimes as well, but those can be hard to come by sometimes. Mm. Um, so he often resorts to using Google Translate, which works well for him. Mm. And what I thought was really interesting about what he said was that um, Russian in like Eastern Ukraine mm-hmm. is like the more like predominant yeah. dialect, which I think is really interesting because you know we think of like um, like they're speaking Russian and they're getting invaded by Russia. It's it's we don't think very often about like the the cultural similarities between yeah, these groups. Exactly. Yeah. What has it, I guess, been like living in 
this war zone. I mean, you talked about how uh, it's hard to sleep with all of the artillery. I mean, so you're here as it's happening, right? Yeah, I was I was in Kharkiv the day it, the day Russia invaded at about five o'clock in the morning. I was woken up and there were bombs starting and Russian tanks were moving across from uh, Belograd, which is, you know, 20 miles away from Kharkiv. So Kharkiv is like right on the Russian border. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's been difficult. There have been power outages and a lack of electricity at times. There have been. Uh, there haven't been too many food shortages, but the hotel I'm staying in, I mean, a lot of times we have plain pasta for breakfast. Mm. So it's like there's a still food, but not much of a selection a lot of the time. Right. Mm. A lot of cigarettes, you know, <laughs> been stressful. Internet goes out. Um, when I was in Kharkiv, the last stint, because I, I've been in and out since day one. Yeah. But the last stint I was there, I went like five days out of shower because Russian shelling damaged the water lines. There's no running water. Wow. So it's, it's been difficult. It's a, a high mm. intensity conflict. It's, not, it's not been easy. It's been one of the more difficult things I've reported on. It's my first, uh, first legitimate war. So, um, Colin said that he often reports on things like as they happen or like the day after he's not really trying to like, you know, support a particular side. He just wants to show the truth. Yeah, so his main goal, he says, is just to to report objectively, to report on the reality of what's happening mm-hmm. um, rather than contribute to any sort of good or bad propaganda that might be coming out of the area. Right. I'd like to report on the truth of what's happening here as much as mm-hmm. possible rather yeah. than I don't want to make pro-Ukraine propaganda, which is why I have addressed the fact that there are some far-right groups here. I've met plenty of Nazis. I, I've met the Azov battalion members and interviewed Azov commanders, and they've, mm. they're have they a fascistic group. I've seen plenty of black sun patches. It's like I'm trying to report on the truth of what's actually happening here, while at mm. the same time, like, you know, back to the Azov and the Nazis, you know, there, there are a lot of them. But most Ukrainians aren't that. So at the same mm-hmm. time, I want to dispel Russian propaganda about how this country is overrun by Nazis because I've met plenty of Jewish fighters that are taking up arms against this invasion as well. Mm. Okay. It just it, this war requires a lot of nuance that sadly most people aren't aren't capable of. It seems. Mm. But what do you think have been like the most significant um, things that you have seen while you've been there? I saw this one, one uh, corpse of a Russian soldier day three of the war who his face was mutilated. He was frozen solid. His hand had half of it missing. Bones were protruding and they hadn't moved him and they didn't plan on moving him because in between his head and the ground was a dented up RPG and they feared that if they moved him, it would go off. Where was So this? we were just, this was in on the northern outskirts of Kharkiv on day three of the invasion. But by the time I saw him, he was frozen. I think he was killed the first day of the invasion. Mm. And uh, his hand was frozen solid. And you could just see, you know, bones sticking out because half his hand was missing. And Mm. yeah, he was very mutilated. His face was unrecognizable. He had a balaclava on. But even through that, you could see just 
flesh ripped from his cheeks and forehead. Like when we were when we were there, we kept to the pavement as much as possible. And if we did have to walk in the snow, we were careful to tread the footsteps of others because snow can easily hide unexploded munitions. So just having to watch your step to avoid uh, to avoid getting blown up was was definitely pretty intense. I guess tell me some some more about your experience uh, talking to the people who are affected um, by this. How how do they react? How do they internalize this war? I guess a lot of them are resolved in the fact that it's going to go on, and they are happy to fight for their countries. A lot of other ones are eager for the war to be over. Sometimes they're disenfranchised with it and just want to compromise. Mm-hmm. A lot of grief. I mean, people that have lost everything. Uh, most of the people we interview are crying. Mm. Or most of the civilians we interview are crying, I'll specify. Yeah. Um, how is their, um, what is their response to you being there as like, you know, an American journalist? Are they very eager to talk to you? Are they more? The vast majority of civilians have been eager to talk and a lot of military has been happy to talk with us at the same time though the ukrainian government is a little media hostile so mm-hmm. there's a lot we can't photograph that i wish we could they uh they're uh, a lot of the time we have government minders or escort whatever you want to call them with us telling us what we can and can't take pictures of so example for example uh, the last time I got to Kharkiv, uh, we had a guy drive us up from Dnipro in a van. He dropped us off at, an, at a uh, territorial defense force, which is a militia, a government-backed militia fighting the Russians. He dropped us off at one of their posts, and we met up with these other soldiers who were going to take us around, show us damage, and tour us through Kharkiv. And mm-hmm. after we had gotten out of the van... They loaded two men into the van whose wrists were tied and they had beanies pulled over and duct taped around their heads. Uh, two Russian spies they'd caught, or alleged Russian spies. Mm. And uh, so the van that brought us up the Harkin took the two spies back down to Dnipro. And that's something I wish I could have gotten on camera, but they wouldn't allow it. Yeah. Okay. But there's just a lot, a lot of stuff like that. So many military positions that I can't photograph and vehicles that I can't photograph. It's just, they're very restrictive with what you can and can't photograph, Mm. sadly. Miller, what did Colin have to say about how he traveled through Ukraine? Yeah, so he usually goes by bus or by train. Um, And the way he's able to do that is he splits the cost of travel and housing with other journalists or photographers that he may be traveling with. Um, And the way that they get through the country safely is that they're often led by either civilian volunteers or military officials. Mm. So I want to talk about um, what is the average day like for you like when do you wake up what do you do where do you go um things like that it it just depends where i am so like since Mm -hmm. i'm you know like when i was you know the first week in kharkiv i was staying in this really nice hotel called the kharkiv palace and uh 
know, I'd go out during the day, you know, hire a driver to try and take us to the front line or go to the train station, see civilians sheltering underground metro, but pretty much just, you know, telling volunteers or our escorts what we want to see and then they drive us there. I mean, that's the way it's been, you know, for a lot of it. Mm. But it's not it's not really like a, a routine per se. Yeah. Just uh try and see what's been happening, try mm. and see the damage from the uh, recent airstrikes. Right. So generally speaking, how like what is the distance between when um the damage happens and when you arrive? Are you arriving like very soon after it happens or like a day or two longer after? A lot of the time it's like a day or so, but sometimes it's closer. So like the market mm-hmm. I went to was hit that day. I went to a that was hit that day. Mm-hmm. Other things I see, you know, several days to a week after. It just it varies from from thing to thing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff, so it's like things that have been photographed like or things that were airstriked the day of you can't photograph legally anymore mm-hmm. so it's like we tried photographing stuff that happened within a day and uh some government officials made us delete it and the mm-hmm. reasoning for that is if the russians see it then they'll be able to correct their artillery and mm-hmm. strike again yeah. you know they'll be able to correct their mistake if they see some journalists reporting so mm-hmm. you have to so now it's like you have to wait a day so yeah. there has to be like a 24 hour period before you can photograph something that's been striked. Um, could you talk more about the people that you have met who have since joined um, militias since the war? Like you said, you know, you met that one person who was an elementary okay. school teacher. So, um, so there's various different militias, mm-hmm. but uh, main militia group is the Territorial Defense Force. Uh, they're the ones who man most of the checkpoints. There are checkpoints throughout the country that you have to go through, blog posts. A lot of the militia we've been with have been Territorial Defense Force. And a lot of these are just everyday people. So it's like I went to a Molotov cocktail-making factory in Dnipro that was run by the Territorial Defense Force. And they made they were making thousands of Molotovs because the Ukrainian government uh, is encouraging citizens to make Molotovs and telling them the correct placement on Russian vehicles to be effective. Mm. But all, all of those uh, territorial defense force soldiers were elementary school teachers before all this happened. Mm. Uh, my last in Kharkiv was with this territorial defense force soldier whose call sign was Shrek. And it's a, a nickname his granddaughter gave him because she loves that movie and thought this reminds me of grandpa. So it's just, mm he joined because he didn't like seeing the looting that was happening. And he wanted to defend his city from both, you know, patrolling for looters, patrolling for spies. You know, Shrek is the one who loaded those Russian spies into the van that uh, I told you about earlier. Right. So uh, yeah, it's uh, a lot of everyday people have just joined the territorial Mm -hmm. defense force because they, they feel called to defend their homes. And if you're not in the territorial defense force, there's plenty of other, ways that civilians are volunteering to help whether it be like food distribution or food deliveries to elderly people who can't leave their their homes or gathering Mm -hmm. medical supplies or high school students that are 
instead of going to school, they're making camouflage netting out of scraps of cloth. Mm. Wow. People have really come there from all walks of life, all political factions to fight the pressing threat of a Russian invasion. Mm. Okay. Um, this, uh, this war has put literal neo-Nazis and anarchists fighting on the same side. It's, uh, it's insane. Well, that's pretty much all we have for today. Um, but you guys can follow uh, Colin Mayfield on Instagram at Colin underscore Mayfield. Um, he's posting like pretty much every day uh, about the things that he's seeing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like, you know, he posts photos of like destroyed buildings and monuments, but also um, the people that he meets and like what they have to say. Um, about the thing there are like military officials, civilians, stuff like that. Yeah. It's definitely a really great, um, great resource um, mm-hmm. to have um, to follow him. Uh, well, from the Auburn Plainsman, this has been Sweet 1111. I'm Trice Brown. And I'm Miller Louthan. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>